Hello and welcome back to Chaos Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be talking about The Hour of the Wolf, the inaugural episode of uh, Babylon 5 Season 4. Um, season 4 is a very interesting season to talk about. It is, if you are to follow JMS's um, sort of overall plan for, this, uh, for the series, uh, each season being an act of a novel, and novels are written in a five-act structure, then season four would be the climax. However, there are some complications with this that I will get into uh, in a minute. I won't go into like full details because so, that would be too spoilery, but I will talk about some of the behind-the-scenes issues with season four and uh, some of the interesting things about it as a result. Um, so this episode uh, picks, you know, picks up like a week after the events of Zaha Doom, uh, and everything is just sort of feeling melancholic and miserable. Uh, and this is reflected in the in, in intro sequence. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the new title sequence, the opening theme, it's got this very sort of, uh, I wouldn't say militaristic, but uh, sort of Cold War type, uh, you know, feel to it. Um, the, the music is epic and, uh, you, there's just an overwhelming sense of, whereas last, last season there was this overwhelming sense of doom, now it's this overwhelming sense of, oh fuck, <laughs> you know, instead of doom, it's just like, well, it's here and we're kind of screwed, um, and we gotta do everything we can to fight it. The inclusion of everybody voicing the intro, the, the, the intro, so it was, you know, it was it was the year of pain, it was the year of joy, blah 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 blah, you know, all that having all, uh, all if not most, I, I think I think I think it's all, but I could be wrong, of the the main actors voicing uh, one line each, um, is a nice touch to really sell the fact that this is the big climax season. However, as I said, I would get to, uh, the behind-the-scenes reason, uh, is because this was kind of the last season, but not really, but kind of. So, as per usual with Babylon 5, things do not always happen according to plan, or things behind the scenes get in the way. I've talked about this a lot going through the series from, you know, like, like, like last week when I talked about the entire, uh, you know, plot line uh, in, in, involving Catherine Sakai and then moving it to Anna, etc., etc. Uh, basically, the TV network that was going to, uh, that, that had been um, sort of uh, producing Babylon 5 had, uh, uh, had decided to cut ties with it. They were starting to go down, uh, and they were going to go out of business within a year or so anyway, but they were cutting, you know, their losses and Babylon 5, while sort of a success, was not too successful and they cost a lot of money to make, even though they tried as hard as they could to reduce cost. So, uh, you know, despite the original planned uh, five seasons, which they accepted with some caveats, such as the pilot movie thing, um, that got chopped. It, season four was going to be Babylon 5's last. And so JMS 
to his credit, I'll give him this, to his credit, man, he worked his ass off. And he took his plans for season four and season five, and he mushed them into one. And as a result, season four is very fast-paced, at times feels very rushed, yet it's both to its detriment and to its uh, positive side as well, because the very frantic pace of this season feels very in tone with what's going on. You know, shit's going down. However, there are some ideas that get lost in the shuffle, things that don't feel as well developed, and we'll get to those in time. Uh, and this leads to uh, what some people consider the season five problem. And, I, and I've mentioned in the past, I think, that, uh, you know, at least in my top five uh, for Babylon 5 uh, article series, that that season five is this weird limbo where I like things about it and I don't like things about it. Yeah, we'll get there when we get there. We've got quite a ways to go until then. But they did eventually get picked up before or just before this season ended. Uh, uh, by another network that came in and saved the show and allowing it to run for another season with a handful of uh, made-for-TV movies and the promise for a spinoff that had some behind-the-scenes issues as well that never got to go to, like, its full... Uh, uh, get to go to its full fruition. But uh, it, it is worth noting as I go through this that Mammon 5 Season 4 is technically season four and season five mushed into one season, uh, with things cut out, obviously, as from the original plan, and what was left made up season five with some new stuff having to be added to fill out that length. That's a problem we will discuss when we get to season five. But this topic will be brought up throughout season four as I get to particular episodes which really show the season four crunch. Where you can tell things were just smushed together and rushed to get through because he had to finish the story because he thought he was never going to get to finish it. I commend him for wanting to tell his story and give it a send off. I commend him for that. Uh, and I do not blame him at all for the problems that came with studio oversight getting in the way of his initial plans. And I'm glad that we got the show we got. But it's just worth pointing out to notice some of the weirdness about season four and season five. Anyway, so Vonova is in this fog. Uh, and God, I, I relate to her so much. Of uh, She is... The, the she's in this situation where she is now basically once again she's where she was in season uh the beginning of season two except even worse she has lost all control her uh her captain and her friend are now gone potentially dead uh she's she's the one that everybody is looking to now and she's got all this tremendous weight on her shoulder, and she has no control over anything. Everything is spiraling out of control, and she blames herself for things spiraling out of control. But it isn't her fault. It's just a very human reaction. And she is just lost in this funk, and it's, it takes a lot to get her out of it. And one could argue whether she's even out of it by the end of this episode. We'll touch on that later. Uh, and... 
that's that's the problem is that she, as I've talked about so many times is she's the kind of person that needs to be hands-on she needs to be in control of the situation uh, because everything she has loved and everyone she has loved has been taken from her due to things outside of her control so now she's obsessed with ensuring that that doesn't ever happen again and it just did and when Lita comes in to talk to her and later in the episode it's this really heartbreaking moment where she talks about her dad's nightly ritual the hour of the wolf you know that that weird time between three and four and he would take a he'd take a big drink of vodka uh, you know, the, the, the hold the wolf at bay. And then he would take three more sips just in case the wolf had any cubs that were lingering about. The point of that, as she points out herself, was trying to numb your mind. The Hour of the Wolf is called the Hour of the Wolf because it is a time in which our deepest, darkest, most depressing thoughts come to bear on us. It is times we can't escape. Uh, it is it is that time of night, those late night thoughts that pervade your mind. It could be more deadly than any gunshot. As you mentally flog yourself into a melancholic death, potentially, or action that, that will have a consequence. It, it is a deadly, deadly thing to have these kind of thoughts. She's been stuck in that for days. And I feel her. I've been lost in that fog. I have experienced the Hour of the Wolf many times. And it's a miserable, miserable time. And it's, it, it's just really sad to see her this way. And she wants so hard to just punch something in the face. You can see it where she's so angry at the gnawing worlds for pulling out. Uh, which is an interesting idea within of its own right. Of uh, In a normal story, in an absolutely ordinary story, traditional good versus evil, traditional uh, you know narrative, they would go and save Sheridan and yay, good guys, because the main character isn't dead. That That's not how stories work. God always triumphs over evil, right? But the non-aligned ones are reacting, one could say stupidly, but it's it's not stupid when you consider their point of view. When you consider the fact that we have the knowledge that Sheridan's probably still alive, and confirmed in this episode. We have the knowledge of what's going on with the shadows. We have the knowledge that the shadows are now uh, sort of on the run. They're, they're, they're fighting for survival now. They're, they've, they've taken a severe loss, and so now they're having to go to some backup plans. If they strike now, they could actually hurt them kind of thing. We know this. They don't. All they see is this big, bad enemy, this boogeyman, suddenly retreat. This big bad boogeyman, which tore apart their alliances, which nearly destroyed a lot of them, uh, and in the one great battle the Army of Light fought against them, they lost so many people and were so clearly outmatched, and only one through, you know, the, the Sheridan bringing them all together and forcing them to work together, and just pure luck. 
And now that Sheraton is gone, they have nothing to hope for. They gotta pull out. It's a lull in the action, certainly, and it's certainly something no one should take for granted, but they're becoming complacent in that because they know, as, as one of them even says, you don't win this war, you survive. So we're going to survive. That means backing away, because the Shadows are backing away, then we're going to back away. It makes perfect sense from that point of view. And they even call out the thing with Ivanova and Delin, is that we could strike, you know, a deadly blow against the Shadows, but that's not really why you want to go to Zaha Doom. You want to go to Zaha Doom to save your captain. You know, uh, Sheridan is Ivanova's friend, one of her closest friends. And uh, and Sheridan is Delin's romantic partner. Do you think that they're perhaps a little bit blind by their own personal feelings for the captain? Their own unwillingness to admit that he possibly died on Zaha Doom is because of their own allegiance to him, their own personal feelings towards him, their own personal biases. And that is something the League of Not Knowing Worlds do not have. So from their point of view, it makes perfect sense to, uh, to pull out. Certainly not the smartest decision, but it's a decision that makes perfect sense when you consider the fact that they are scared. And that is also sort of Ivanova's thing. When, when Veer comes to comfort her, she turns away because Veer comes with the confirmation that Sheridan is dead. Probably. We, the viewer, know he is not, or at least sort of. We'll get to that later in a, few, a couple episodes. But, but the big thing here is that it's looking like he is dead and she cannot handle it. She breaks down, but she doesn't want to show that she's breaking down because she is now, for all intents and purposes, the leader of this station. She has to show a united front, a sort of, uh, you know, a face of unbreakable courage. And so all she wants to do is just punch someone in the face to take out her anger, to take out her sadness. She wants control back. And that is the real tragedy of Anava's side of this episode, is just how miserable life is when it keeps throwing stuff at you and you cannot get away from it. You can't get away from thinking about it. You can't get away from anything. But that's all you want to do. So you're stuck there in the hour of the wolf, second guessing, questioning, and forever sitting there in your own sorrow. Now, let's get to the uh, small bit with uh, with uh, Jakar. Uh, one thing I love. Uh, about this is that, and we'll talk about this more in the next episode. But Jakar. Uh, is, you know, even says that we have been so concerned about what happened to Sheridan and his, the lull in the action in the Shadow War that we have kind of forgotten what has happened to Garibaldi. And Zach says, no, we haven't forgotten, but we know that the Chief would want Sheridan found first. And what I love about it is for Jakar, it is so personal. You know, Jakar used to be this obstinate bureaucrat, this... Uh, loud-mouthed, almost villainous character, and look how far he's come. 
and I've talked about this so many times, but the thing is, is that within that is Garibaldi always took him for what he was and not what he appeared to be. He was kind and he believed in Drakkar and he gave him chances for redemption and chances to show his true colors and never, ever second guessed him. You know, that, that that old, you know, line from like, what what was it, season two of I, I always, I always leave room in a conversation for someone to disappoint me. And you didn't. You know, that was Garibaldi to Jakar. So Jakar feels like he has an obligation to repay Garibaldi for that kindness. And I love that. This is just so Jakar and so Narn and its mentality, but also just so very, very human in a way. I don't know. It, it, it's something that I would do, you know, of, I don't know, I, I have this thing of, you know, I'm, I believe in, uh, letting people speak for themselves, not letting who they are on the outside or what they believe in sort of define them, let themselves define themselves. And, if they treat me a certain way, I'm going to treat them a certain way. And if someone shows me kindness, I'm definitely going to show them kindness back. And that is the way Jakar is right now. And I love that. Uh, I will talk about the uh, Vorlon stuff real quick. I don't have a whole lot to say about it right now. We'll get to that in a couple episodes. Um, but one thing I love about Olkesh in this is that when Dylan speaks to him and Alita speaks to him, unlike Kosh, who where it was clear he was keeping things from them, but he was kind enough to be enigmatic about it. Ulkesh doesn't even bother answering. You know, uh, even even when Dylan says everything that the Membari and I and the Army of Light have done for the Vorlons. You don't even show us any, you know, any kind of respect. We deserve your respect. And his one and only response is, respect is irrelevant. That's the way they are. He, Ulkesh is, whereas Kosh was the embodiment of a Vorlon that wanted to do more. A, someone who was trapped within the Vorlon mentality, but believed he could make a difference within that mentality. Olkesh is the physical embodiment of the Vorlon mentality, which is, I don't give a shit about you. You're a tool. And a tool is to be used until it's broken. And once it's broken, it is to be discarded. You will do as I tell you until you're not worth anything anymore. That's how he treats Delenn. That's how he treats Lita. And that's how he even talks about Sheridan. His usefulness has run out. And that is very much in line with the way the Vorlons think. We have been seeing this since Season 1. Kosh was an exception to the rule. A small exception. He, he operated within the bounds of reason when it came to the Vorlon way of thinking, but that is what he was doing. And thus we come to the Londo section when it comes to Morden. I'll talk about Cartesia in a minute, but let's talk about Morden. Morden's entire uh, speech to Londo of flesh is transitory. 
you know, flesh is a vessel. Flesh is an instrument, a tool. Uh, does this not at all strike you as, like, similar to the way Olkesh talks about everyone? Hmm. And even worse is when you consider the fact that when the eye, the, the shadow kind of thing that we saw season or so ago uh, when Ivanova was in The Great Machine, how he's sort of compelling Ivanova and Lita and Delan and Lanier, etc. to come down to Zaha Doom. And, and we see that they the, the shadows manipulate through personal attachment. This has been shown repeatedly through the way that they talk about things and do things. Anna Sheridan... You know, Morden Kiliadira, you know, appealing to Londa's baser nature, etc., etc., etc. But this is even more insidious when you consider the fact that Ivanova says that uh, that the eye appeared to her in the guise of her father, and so did it, it did for Delenn. Well, remember when Kosh appeared to Sheridan? What form did he take? Oh, yeah, that's right. Sheridan's father. Once again, the the ideas of the Vorlons in the Shadows, as explicitly stated last episode, uh, and will become more apparent in the next few episodes, is that they are bickering parents. Uh, and to fully understand this, we'll have to get into, uh, you know, later this season, in particular an episode called Into the Fire, where this comes full circle. But the entire idea being that they believe they are, you know... They birthed us, basically. They believe that they're that they are entitled to respect. But to quote Olkesh, respect is irrelevant. Respect has to be earned. They sure hell haven't earned it. Now, let's talk about the actual bit with Londo and Cartesia. This is an interesting thing. So, we've heard about Cartesia for a while since season two, in fact. Um, and now he's being shown, and what I love about him is that he is an, basically an historical parallel analogous to the Roman emperor of Caligula, uh, who was an insane emperor who thought he was God, blah, 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 won't get into it. Uh, very similar to Cartesia, he makes a deal with the shadows in the belief that they'll give him godhood. He doesn't care about anybody else. Uh, because the rules have been taught to him, and the rules of Centauri society is pass the buck. It is, it's not my problem, it's the problem of the house, or the problem of the royal court, or whatever. So he has grown up in a world of power and privilege, and stomping on those that get in your way. He just doesn't care. And the emperor is the ultimate power. And the emperor is not to be questioned. Even those that question him question him quietly and behind closed doors because to question him is to invite death. As as he says, you know, no, uh, you know, to question my orders would be, uh, you know, criminal. And and Lando says that is tradition. Yes, uh, the the Centauri way of thinking has blinded him so much and corrupted him and has fed his own ego. To the point of his absolute unarguable insanity has led to some horrible things and are going to continue to lead to horrible things. I'll get to it more and more as this, you know, series of episodes unfolds, 
the 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 links of his insanity but we get to see a lot of it here and uh, just to give an example when Londo's vision his horrifying vision of so many shadow vessels you know enough to plot out the sun show up and Londo realizes that his vision he had all those years ago you know is coming true that it was real all of this is real and happening and it's his fault that everybody is kind of freaked out by them or intrigued when you come to the emperor and you see his reaction he's joyful he is was peeking out the window like some sort of child waiting for Santa Claus during Christmas. He is practically beaming. And that's why Londo freaks out and says, get away from the window. And tries to force the Cartesia away from the window and is nearly killed for it. Because Londo freaked the fuck out. Because he knows who the shadows are, what they're capable of, and just how dangerous they are. And this madman is happy they're here. What kind of diseased individual, what kind of psychoses are laying inside his mind to think that this is a good thing? And as we know from his, uh, you know, his literal modus operandi, as stated to Londo, he wants godhood, and he couldn't care less about who else dies in the process. The shadows, these people spoken about in, you know, ancient... Uh, you know, ancient, you know, scriptures of all races have immense power. Otherwise, they wouldn't still be here. Therefore, they can give him power. That's all he cares about. He's grown up in a world that, that cherishes the ability to crush others for your own benefit. I mean, that is literally, in the third episode of season one, what it was entirely about is that the world of the Centauri is built upon blackmail. The more leverage you have over someone the more power you have in the Centaurum. So that is what he's doing. He just wants ultimate power. And if he can crush you with the might of a, you know, army or whatever, well, guess what? Now, now he's untouchable. At the end of story. And Londo is abhorred by this. He's disgusted by it. And yet it's all his fault. That's where we come to... When Morden says one of my favorite lines, if there's a madman on the throne, it's because you and Rifa put him there. This is the ultimate you reap what you sow moment. Londo, an attempt to bring back the glory and restore his people to what he believed they were, what the history books taught him, what he was propagandized about what he believed in the idea of the centauri as a race breeds this person an insane person an insane individual who has been put in a place of power and privilege that no one can touch him and if anybody questions him they're dead and he has the power to do anything he wants and to be questioned is to invite death which is why when Londo actively starts questioning him to his face out of sheer, you know, fear 
out of what he has just done, that he has actively invited the shadows here, you know, he is warned to not question the Emperor. Because the Emperor is always right, of course. It is his, you know, obligation as an Emperor to be right. After all, if you were to question the Emperor, you were questioning, you know, the Centauri as a race, their nation. And that's unpatriotic, right? It goes back to the old sentiment that I keep sharing about Sheridan uh, when he points out that there's a difference between the office and the person currently holding the office. That you can maintain patriotism while still criticizing the ideas and the actions of the person currently holding the political office. That is what's happening here is we're in a system where that cannot happen. And Londo is at fault because he put the people in power that wanted Cartesia in power because he was a warmonger, because he was he, he saw the, th the way things should be, at least in their eyes, of power, money, and strength. That's the core virtues. And that's all he cared about. He doesn't care how many people he has to step on to get there. We cannot escape the consequences of our own actions. Inevitably, they always catch up to us. And Londo is now having to come face-to-face -face with his own consequences, and he has to make a choice of what he does. Does he accept his new emperor? Or does he do something about it and try and make amends for his own mistakes? And that's why he invites Veer back to Centauri Prime. He needs someone he can trust, because if he's going to deal with the consequences, then he needs someone with a perspective that is far different from him, and someone that is absolutely loyal to him, even if it means, you know, death. And that's where we are at by the end of this episode. Of course, we have that big, um, you know, reveal that Sheridan is not dead. And we're getting introduced to a new character who I'll talk about in the next episode. Um, who simply restates a lot of questions and a lot of answers that have been a core theme of this series. So, who are you? What do you want? Why are you here? You know, why am I here in this place? Because you were born. And... This will be touched upon in the next couple episodes about the idea, but we've been seeding this idea for a very long time, and especially came to the forefront of comes the Inquisitor back in Season 2, being the right person at the right time for all the right reasons. I'll touch more upon this idea next time, but this is a phenomenal season opener. Um... I'm not sure if it's the strongest out of all of them, but it's pretty damn up there. So until then, uh, see you next time. Bye.